Welcome back to the Coach and Kernan Show. It's our post-hurricane edition, episode 53 now. Can't believe we've gone that long. And we're here on our, our newest podcast, The Hot Corner with Coach Sal. It's the third rendition of this episode. Um, Sal, welcome welcome back. Thanks for being patient yesterday. Let us get through the hurricane and, and excited to have you here on a Saturday right now to do your podcast. Yeah, looking forward to it. I'm just glad you're okay after weathering the storm. Yeah, everything's everything's good down here. I told you I felt a little sense of loss yesterday because yesterday was the first day in months that I haven't done a podcast. We have one going every day pretty much. And um, But a uh, good part about a lot of people checking on us. And in the, the interim, we have our guest list for Real Voices set up through November now. So um, with that idle time, I was able to help out and get more guests on. So awesome. but today, awesome. with, today with your show, we've got a little bit of follow-up from last week's show. Plus, we teased it a little bit in our our round table uh, with the guys this week. We want to get on some some protein. I think you were you were touching on the importance of protein, the amount of protein, but you started getting into the timing of when to eat protein. I believe Kevin asked you that question. I wanted to give you some time today to deep dive that. So there is um, there is a great guy to follow on Twitter. I'm going to lead in with this because I, I always enjoy giving um, uh, credit where credit is due. He uh, has a great... Uh, a great account on Twitter. It's at calories proper all um, together. And his name is Bill Legacos and he's a PhD in nutritional biochemistry and, um, and circadian biology. Basically he posts a lot of stuff about nutrition and how sleep affects us. Okay. And he has a great book that I would recommend everybody to get. It's probably less than the price of a cup of coffee at uh, any of your favorite coffee spots, and it's called All Calories Are Not Created Equal. Um, and in his book, he had spent some time discussing a study they did where they looked at the amount, not only the amount of uh, protein taken in in a day, but the timing of it. And one of the most interesting studies was they took two groups, um, fed them the same amount of food, the same amount of uh, protein. The one group only thing they did differently was split, or I should say time some of their protein intake to be within an hour before and an hour after their workouts. And what they found was that group lost twice the body fat and added two times the muscle. And I should say, I'm sorry, I should say they, they had 50% less body fat and twice as much muscle gain and loss as the group that had the same amount of calories and the same amount of protein, but didn't time it. And then Dave, uh, and then Dave what they did, which is always the gold standard in these, te- in these studies, is they flipped groups and had the other group follow the same protocol and they had the same result. So, and that's, uh, that's a great uh, indication of how many, uh, of how a calorie can be different than the actual amount of just the, the value that the calorie is given. The timing of the protein makes it more effective than just getting it in your regular course of your day. That's that's interesting because people tend to focus on the amount as opposed to the timing. Is one more important than the other? Well, I think you have to have if you're under if you're under uh, consuming your protein, it won't be as effective regardless. Uh, I, I would imagine you, this is pure guesswork, but I would imagine if you're under your strike point, but you're still timing it around your workouts, you're probably better off. But since we know now that, that, you know, a a 15 gram 
before and after uh, dose of protein is going to help you a lot without having to add any more food in your diet. Okay. And that's not a lot. That's uh, no, that's, that's uh, no, I, I like to so say the marriage is, is important. You get the two right and you're, you're going to be optimal athletically in your endeavor. Plus you're going to improve your body. And, you know, one of the things we always harp on is it's not just what you're doing when you work out, but it's what your recovery is like. And there, there's an example of your recovery becomes more efficient because you're going to time those calories um, so that your body uses them obviously on the way in for the workout, but then on the way out to help you in your recovery. I like that point. That's key. I think that's what, you know, we're, we're seeing the end of baseball season now, 162 games. Uh, we're seeing weird injuries that happen throughout the, the season. Some of it is improper training. Some of it, it's, it's a, a myriad of things, but I would like to test this out too with, uh, with ball players and see how that helps them. Recovery is the key. Yeah. You got to get back up in baseball. Like we said, baseball is a game that's meant to be played. Right. Um, and, and, and if, you know, if you're doing that correctly, that's also, it's just across the board. It's, it's making you better. It's more fuel that, and if you're eating properly, you're going to have more energy and you're able to fuel yourself and, and it gets you through those, you know, instead of always reaching for the caffeine, which I know all of us are guilty, guilty of, you know, sometimes that's your body's cry for calories and, and actually good calories, not the garbage that we get. So many of us all get hooked on. It's happened to all of us. Oh, present company included. Yeah. Uh, same. No question. You know, Dave, I've eaten, I followed all of the prescribed best quote, I'm putting air quotes up now, best ways to eat over the last 30 plus years. And, you know, there, uh, I went from the no fat to the high fat and every, every break uh, or every uh, variation in between. And uh, there's no question that the higher protein, higher fat, lower carbohydrate diet uh, will only make, not only make you feel better, but it'll add to your, um, your success in, in the gym. No, I think all of our kids listening Pay attention because we know these weekends are filled with, especially baseball, kids are going out there playing three, four games in a day, which is ridiculous. But if you're doing it, you might as well fuel the right way and, and take what, what Sal's saying, like gospel and, and take care of your one hour before, one hour after and really pay attention to that recovery. You know, another, uh, I don't want to call it a misnomer because I don't want to drive the conversation one way, but there's all these sports drinks out there. And we've talked about cramping on the show um, before. What are your thoughts on the different sports drinks out there? What's real? What's not real? What should kids be drinking during games? We're talking recovery now before and after. Well, well first of all, cramping is, has nothing to do with the state of hydration. Uh, that's one of the biggest myths that, and that's been promoted by the sports drinks companies. And it's pretty much reinforced almost every hot weather football game that you watch when a guy is down. And the first thing they say, it's reflexive uh, oh, we're getting get, make sure they're giving him his fluids. He's drinking. Okay. They're drinking so much Gatorade, Dave, that that another couple of sips at that point makes no difference. Uh, cramps come from neuromuscular fatigue, and especially in this day and age uh, where you can't practice as much as you used to. There's not as much hitting as there used to, and there's pros and cons to all that. I'm not I'm not uh, a junction boy here, but cramps come from fatigue, and you could say it's because you're not in shape. You know, uh, it, that's a way of saying it. I don't I, I think that's a, a negative way. I, I think you just it's very hard to prepare, especially in football, for the conditions in a football game with the pushing and the pulling and the changing of direction constantly 
that it's very hard to prepare for that in a week of practice. I don't care how good of a coach you are. And what it takes sometimes is to get a couple of games under your belt before everybody is truly in game shape. Okay, so that that there's your first part. Let's do away with the thought that dehydration causes cramps. And I'll give you another little tidbit. Most high-level athletes function in a pretty good degree of dehydration, especially in your in your time and distance uh, sports such as uh, marathon running, distance running. Those guys are not drinking anywhere near uh, the amount that they the experts quote would have you believe you needed to. They those guys can they 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 can exist in this state of dehydration at, at a high level because it's necessary. Um, so dehydration rarely is a cause of any of these problems that we've read about and heard about. To, to go to your point, Dave, if you're drinking water regularly, and that means to address your needs for thirst, it's not the eight ounces, eight times a day even. You know, the, the studies that have been done, it's drink to thirst and you're in good shape. And you also have to eat, Dave, because uh, 80% of our food is water. And, you know, so many kids that I've, you know, been in contact with through sport, you know, come into their, their eight o'clock practice, their nine o'clock in the morning practice, they haven't eaten they probably haven't had too much to drink, so they're already dehydrated. So that leads to other problems, but not to the cramps. Yeah, so what is, and I know that's always been a, we talk about the myths a lot on the show, eight ounces, eight times a day. That's just as much a myth as the, uh, I guess the the food pyramid we had, right, in school? That they yeah, used to show. yeah I, I think it's, a, it's not a bad, it's not a bad idea. Because uh, it gives you a guideline, but sixty—that's a lot of water. I mean, I, I drink a liter and a half a day, and and how I know that is, I like to—I don't use—I don't constantly buy bottled water, but I reuse basically. Um, I know what my my cup holds, and I I reuse a bottle every day because I kind of like to know exactly where I am, and, and that's a guideline. And you know, you know, if I'm on vacation or if I'm away for the weekend, you know, I'm I'm not doing that same thing, but I'm always aware of the water I take in. And I, it's just by habit. And, and, you know, you find yourself not getting, uh, a lot of garbage calories. If you're drinking sports drinks, it's all sugar, it's garbage calories, empty nutrition. And if you're drinking diet sodas and that stuff, it's just, you're putting chemicals and stuff in your body that you don't need. So, you know, obviously once in a while, that stuff is great, but you don't need it. And these kids are, I, I see it at every game. It doesn't matter what the sport is. There's a heavy consumption of, you know, whether it's Gatorade or Powerade or something aid on the sideline, and they're drinking it like it is water, and that it's needed for hydration. You're saying it's it's not. Are there any sports drinks out there that are good supplements during during training that you're aware of? I don't I don't think so. Again, I think if you're eating properly. Now, granted, if you're some kind of extreme, if you were to play, you know, a, a football game in extreme conditions or, or a soccer game or any kind of any kind of high level activity it's not gonna uh be bad for you if you at the end of that have a have a sports drink but to rely on it as your you know I, I see these kids with bottles of Gatorade going to a you know a 12 12 10 12 year old soccer practice and they're drinking you know 16 to 24 ounces of Gatorade for a practice that's like moderate at best that's that's all Wasted money, wasted calories. You're doing stuff to your body you don't need to. You're putting way too much sugar into your body that you just don't need to. Yeah. I, I've got one. I just thought about it now, and we, we, we did not talk about this uh, prior, but I, I ran an ultra marathon a couple of years back, 100.3 miles uh, in Arkansas. And 
I was at about mile, if I could, lost track at that time, 40 something and was cramping a little bit. And I knew it was muscle fatigue, but somebody offered me pickle juice. Yep. And I, I drank it. It did not go very well with me. I won't drink pickle juice again, but a lot of people swear by it. Have you have you heard of that before? Or is it something that does oh, work? Oh, yeah. Pickle juice has had a, a wide range of uh, miraculous benefits ascribed to it since Nolan Ryan was having uh, blister problems. I think he might have been the first guy. I know he definitely used to soak his fingers in it to keep himself from getting blisters. Uh, it, it, it seems to work. I, I, I can't speak to the research at this point, but there's definitely something to it, whether it's placebo. Uh, I'm not sure. I know I had, uh, I have twin uh, boys who played high school sports. One of them was a little prone to um, cramps and he used it and it seemed to help him. But my other boy who did actually absolutely the same thing as him never had cramps. So I think there's a little, you know, a, a little uh, myth to it, but if it works, it's not, it, I, I'll tell you what, it's better for you than drinking sports drink. Yeah. And in, in, in the ultra marathon community, people swear by it. It's a, it's a, it's as much a staple as anything at the rest stations. And I figured, you know, you mentioned operating in states of dehydration. I felt dehydrated that, that day of, of running and I may try it again. I don't, I won't blame it all on pickle juice. I think running 100.3 miles probably did more to my body negatively than the pickle juice did, but, um, but they swear by it. They say they, they, they pack it. So, and, and you know, there's a, um, I don't want to get into the argument of because it always seems to d devolve into an argument of being an advocate or you're trying to push it. I just am telling you what what I've seen about the high fat, high protein diet is beneficial. And the the little bit of info I think is is really revealing is you cannot carb load the energy you need to run a race like that or even a marathon or a lot of these other distance races, uh, 10K, for instance. However, if you eat properly, if you feel if you've eaten, I don't want to say properly because I'm I'm not being judgmental, but if you eat the if you follow the keto diet properly, the high fat, high protein diet, really high fat diet properly, you can train your body to burn your body fat for that fuel, which is infinitely more efficient than trying and you could carry and hold you hold way more calories, potential calories in your body fat than you do in your ability to ingest carbohydrates pre-race. So, you know, if you're always used to eating carbohydrates, what you're doing is like putting a ton of logs on the fire and making it burn hot. And then you always need to put more logs on to keep it hot. Whereas if I can make this analogy, the keto diet is having that fire that burns hot, but doesn't need to have those logs constantly thrown on it because it's a steady burn and it's used to that constant uh, availability of fuel, which which the keto does because it puts you in a state where you're using your stored body fat. So even someone with very low body fat has infinitely more potential calories at hand for fuel than the person who's carb loading. Could this benefit, you know, we're talk, we talk about pitchers all the time that they don't go deep into games now. Some of that's the, you know, coaches babying the arms, but as a result of that, their legs, their cardio, uh, their abilities to last longer diminish. Could something like this help pitchers go longer? Absolutely. It, it, it's for any athlete. Yeah. It's, it's going to be for any athlete. I mean, and then obviously you have to follow the proper conditioning schedule. But yes. yeah. Well, let, let's get into our third topic here. We, we talked a little bit before the show about a study that uh, a friend of yours was uh, doing and has to deal with a little bit shift here, has to do with ACL injuries and 
uh, on turf and certain kinds of cleats being used. Talk about that right now, because I think we've seen, I don't think anybody knows what it is. It's lack of mobility. Um, you know, we've seen the surgeries, uh, overtraining, whatever it may be, but this is an interesting take on it. a certain kind of cleat maybe contributing to ACLs. Well, it's been, it's been out there actually, because, um, if you do some digging around, you'll find that, you know, for the last 10 years or so, there's been papers, written studies done, you know, whether it's, uh, anecdotal, whether it's, um, you know, a, uh, a survey of finding out what, what kind of cleats these, these athletes have been wearing, but like two thirds, two thirds to three quarters of all ACL injuries occur during a change of direction. And the classic, profile it's non-contact where think about your left foot is in the ground and you're turning to your right so it occurs in the leg that's on the ground as your base is turning away from it so everyone can kind of picture that right you put your foot in the you put your left foot in the ground your shoulders turn right you go to step to your right on an angle or step laterally and that left foot sticks in the ground and that's where the the ACL tur- uh, tears it's a torque that's why in these ACL injuries, you get meniscus injury, you get meniscus damage. So the really bad ones, you get some bone damage because it's that violent uh, torque of that knee joint. So they've been looking at, uh, people have been looking at, uh, or is it the cleats? And a, a recent study, which I'm going to get a copy of and we can p- put up, looks more specifically at these new modern cleats that have the molded bottoms and they have almost what they call this crescent shaped cleat at the bottom around the heel and up around the toe. I'm sorry, the midfoot area and the ball of the foot. And uh, uh, an, uh, a coach had a high perspo- uh, uh, proportion of his athletes with ACL tears, and they all were wearing this particular type of molded cleat, which he referred to as almost a blade-like design of the uh, of the cleat in question. So, you know, I, I think I mentioned on the show, on the other show, my one son had an ACL, non-contact ACL injury, and it was your classic, as I described, foot in the ground, no one touched him, turns to plant. And he said he felt his foot stick. And the next thing you know, he, he felt the, the pop and the burn in his knee. Uh, that That is, I can't tell you how many athletes I've heard that from. And, and actually, uh, Dave, two weeks ago, I have a freshman football player who had a, a, a very bad high hamstring injury from planting. Now, to his, he was lucky because he put his foot in the ground and turned. So he put his right foot in the ground. Think about you're running straight ahead. You put your right foot in the ground. And he went to turn right. So he didn't turn away. He went to turn into it. And he felt his foot stick and he felt a pop high up in his hamstring glute, which laid him up for quite a while. So we haven't even gotten to the point now where they're attributing these uh, soft tissue injuries to that as well. But I think there's enough concern with the shoe wear, footwear. And this kid was wearing the classic foot uh, footwear that I described uh, to, to think about getting back to the old turf shoes, which were starting to come out when we were. Uh, I know when I was in high school, even though there wasn't a lot of artificial turf, there was hardly any. They were wearing these um these shoes that had a lot of small cleats in the uh, nubs in the bottom, not the t- traditional cleat. Yeah, no, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about regarding that. As far as training goes, um, if the model, the molding of the cleats don't change, I, I like this study examining that. I think you, you talk about it all the time, the 
what we put on our feet is inhibiting our abilities to even not just walk like athletes, but walk like humans are supposed to walk. Is there a way to train to help? Um, I guess you can't, you can't eliminate the ACL potential injuries because of how our sports are. But you know, I, we were always taught when I was younger, we just did the squats in one direction or the bending in one. As I got older, I started training with a hockey player and I learned to, to do exercises to take my knee off the plane. Yeah. Because like you said, that's when you get hurt. Right. We're not trained that way. What are some ways that kids can can uh, train that way and then get back to the, the cleats in a second? Well, I, I think, and that's a great question. We could do a two-hour presentation on that. Um, I've always done multiplanar, light, explosive movements. Multiplanar means you know cha- you're changing direction, not just when you're sprinting and doing agilities, but how your foot moves and, and what you do in the gym. And honestly, without a video or without being able to show you, it's hard to describe or, or understand what this is. But my my concept, and it got you know I've always thought this way, and then when I looked at the position the body is in jeopardy in when you or the, the body is in when it you get these non-contact tear I realized we're really not training the body in that position and I've tried to and I have come up with some exercise techniques that I use in the gym that are designed to at least prepare the body for that position of jeopardy as I call it now you don't want to I'm not I'm not um, affixing the foot to the floor because there's no way you could prepare for that. But I am trying to get the body to put their foot uh, in the ground in one direction and quickly turn away from it without, obviously, the jeopardy that artificial turf uh, provides. And and I like that. That's that's good stuff for our young kids. to to They can take your words and communicate that to their, their trainers as well or have the trainers listen to the show or contact Sal. That would be a great way to begin our network. So back to the cleats uh, or the turf shoes, cleats on the turf. Was there any conclusion? I mean, what kind of shoes should our kids look for, our parents look for when they're playing on turf? Well, I mean, I think think until you're able to come up with a a for sure reason, if you could do without those cleats that have that crescent or that blade-like design – I, I would think it's you got to it's got to be worth it to try to use your traditional old school, um, uh, smaller cleat, less depth. You're not getting that foot to stick so deeply. You know, someone might find well those other shoes create a different kind of of, of pattern that could be in jeopardy. But um, I, I I think for sure we should try not not to use these new. Um, these newer cleats that again have that crescent type shape to it, uh, and like I said, you I'm going to post this study. We can post it on our Twitter. It comes from Penn State Center for uh, Sports Surface Research, and they go really in depth. So rather than me try to sum it up uh, and and butcher it, uh, I think people really parents really need to go into this, especially for your kids. You know, there's 14 and 15 year old kids getting ACL tears. Um, you got to read this about the, the shoes, and, and and we have to try to come up with a uh, uh, with with a better way to 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 you know figure out what shoes are, are the best for these kids. Yeah, no, I think all the things we chatted about today, and as we remind all of the parents and kids out there, we have our opinions, we have our stances on on stuff. We're very strong, as our audience says, we're beholden to no one. So we. We, uh, we let it all out there, but do your, do your own research too. Uh, you know, understand what you're doing with your kids and yourself. And, and that'll certainly put 
our parents in a position to make better decisions for their children. So how can our, our audience find you? I mean, great, great show again today for you. You've got a great following right now. Um, your, your shows have scored off the charts. So you, you, the, the listeners are responding. We gave them what they wanted. They wanted more Sal. So we gave them more Sal. Yeah. But um, how can they find you? How can they reach out to you for either speaking or training um, or just ask questions? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Sal Marinello altogether. Um, and my email is coachsalm at protonmail.com. And uh, they can get in touch with me that way. I have a pretty low profile social media. I'm not, uh, you know, this is this has been my biggest uh, effort lately and uh, uh, capitalizing off of that. But uh, I also have a sub stack uh, at Coach Sal M. So um, that's another way you could find me. But you can contact me directly is always the best way. Yeah. And as our audience knows, n- none of our uh, we're of the generation prior to social media. So none of us are um, crazy on the social media. And, and I'll speak on for Sal for a second here. Uh, I've had players that we've sent to him and it's been tremendous. The, the amount of time and energy uh, to get to know each player and each athlete and each family. It's not a cookie cutter our approach by any means. It's uh, very specific to their wants and needs and, and, uh, He's uh, the best of the best. So I would recommend reaching out to him. If you need a speaker, you hear him speak on the show. Um, he's even more dynamic in person. So I encourage you to reach out to Sal for, for any number of reasons, but specifically get him in front of your, uh, your people. Um, and I think you'll benefit exponentially. So Sal, thanks again. I mean, great show. We're on uh, episode 53 here of Coaching Kernan Podcast Network, third rendition of The Hot Corner with Coach Sal. Um, we will see you next time. Thanks, Sal. Thanks, Dave. Have a good one.